Tonight, we set out together through the book of Genesis. Ooh. I feel like I'm done. That's your introduction to Genesis. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, based on my copious research, the last time our church went through this book from start to finish was 1993. Uh, about 12 years ago, Pastor Jake um, taught through a big chunk of it uh, in the middle. Tonight, we're going to start again, 1 verse 1. The more we think about Genesis, the more we realize how significant it is doctrinally, historically, philosophically, and biblically. Of course, you know, all 66 books of the Bible are significant, not making light of any other book of the Bible, but some are more consequential on the whole than others. And here's an example of what I mean. The Song of Solomon, very important book, necessary according to God's revelation, right? And we're thankful for it. We're not talking down about it. Not referenced at all in the New Testament, right? It just, it, it has its place in the Old Testament and its place in our lives, but on the whole, it is less prominent than other books. On the other hand, in contrast to that, there are at least 165 passages from Genesis that are either directly quoted or clearly referred to in the New Testament. Every New Testament writer refers to Genesis. In fact, every New Testament writer refers to Genesis in chapters 1 through 11 of Genesis as well. Very important. Dr. Dr. Henry Morris, a great uh, expert in the book of Genesis, writes this. No other book of the Bible is quoted as copiously or referred to so frequently in other books of the Bible as is Genesis. And that makes sense because Genesis is a book of beginnings. The word Genesis means origins. It not only shows us the start of our cosmos, but it shows us the origin of why things are the way they are around us. And it's also the beginning of God's special revelation to mankind. When God, in his grace, decided to reveal himself to his creatures, this is where he started the story. This is where the record began. Uh, you know, on a, and on one hand, we think, well, of course, it starts at the beginning. But we're all familiar with books and plays and movies and television shows that don't start at the beginning of the story. And oftentimes, they'll start at the climax of the story, and then the rest will be a flashback leading up to that. Or it'll start at the end, or it'll start at some different point. And God could have done whatever he wanted when it came to his revelation of, the, of himself through the scriptures. It's his idea to inspire these books using human agents. And so this is what he decided to do to start off the record. Now, I, for one, often uh, just usually take it for granted that God has revealed himself and his doings to us. I think, oh, yeah, of course, he especially has revealed himself. But he didn't have to. He really did it. Uh, not only because he's allowed to do whatever he wants to do, but think of it even in our own human terms. Often powerful people in our society or in the world community will go to very great lengths to conceal their personal lives, to conceal their activities to the world at large, whether it's things like campaign contributions, real estate purchases, those sorts of things. Often, the more powerful and prominent and uh, uh, famous you are, the less you want people to know about what you're doing. But not so with God. God doesn't do that at all. He has gone to a lot of trouble to bridge the gap from heaven to earth so that we can know about him. 
to make sure that we not only know what he has done, but what he still plans to do. And on top of that, who he is as a person, what he thinks, what his heart is like and how he feels. In doing so, in revealing himself through his scripture, he answers many questions that we have. And a lot of very important questions get answered in the book of Genesis. Questions like, where did this all come from? Where did I come from? Humans have an innate desire to know where we came from and who we are and how to make sense of the world around us. It's one of the many characteristics that separates us from the animals, right? There is no... animal of choice. There is no desert tortoise out there pondering where he came from right now, right? The koi in your koi pond do not care if there is a God or not, you know? I mean, now creation is groaning, of course, but, but your cat at home isn't thinking about where he came from. He's thinking about how he can mess up your life in some way when you get home. Or even right now is maybe coughing a hairball up on your pillow, on your pillow right now. We were on out of town last week, and uh, as soon as we got home and, and we were hanging out with the cat or whatever, we like, she we got up on the boy's bed and was sleeping there, and we left, and we came back in, and she had just barfed all over the boy's bed. Like, thank you, Tuna, for welcoming us with, with that gift that you've given us. Yeah, our cat's name is Tuna, so... Anyway, this is one of the great things that humans do. We wonder things, we ask questions. And that desire isn't only felt among religious people. Even atheists or self-described atheists wanted to answer the question of where we came from. And they have come up with some truly preposterous theories in their attempt to ignore the reality of God and what he has gone to such great lengths to reveal to mankind. So Genesis answers a whole lot of important questions. At the same time, it's going to leave a lot of questions unanswered. And as we read it, it's even going to raise new questions in our minds, some that will be addressed in a later portion of Scripture. And through our studies, we'll be visiting other portions of Scripture often. But it also will raise questions in our minds that we are just left to ponder that we are not given a definitive answer to. Like most books of the Bible, Genesis is controversial, meaning that controversies spring up because of differing interpretations of certain passages. It happens a whole lot in the front end of the book, in the first 11 chapters, which cover the creation, the flood, the Tower of Babel, up to the time of Abraham. Even within the church, people from uh, uh, you know, different traditions or from different perspectives, they form up into camps and they draw battle lines in support of or in opposition to certain doctrinal stances. And it happens after the very first verse of the book. We get through the first verse of the book and immediately a fight forms right after that first verse closes. It's an interesting thing to think about. Now, I'm sure that some of us in the room this evening, uh, I'm sure that there are those of us who have disparate and yet passionately held opinions on certain elements of the creation account. As we move through these passages, you may find yourself on one side of a debate or another, and that's okay. You should know what you believe and have good biblical reasons for your opinions and positions, not because I told you or because some author you like told you, but because you've searched the scriptures and come to your own conclusions based on the revelation God has given you in the Holy Spirit indwelling your heart. Uh, At the same time, 
we have to be humble enough to admit that there are issues we're going to come across that have been argued over for hundreds of years by faithful believers who have not come to a consensus. That's just the bottom line on some of these arguments. And of course here, we're not talking about any kind of essential doctrine. The essential doctrines are rock solid and they're very clear and we know what they are and we understand them. I'm talking about non-essential issues of which there are many. Within the Christian faith, there are many non-essential issues that sometimes God's people divide over, split churches over, those sorts of things. But even though we can have a strongly held, passionate opinion about a doctrine based off of biblical evidence, there's still in a non-essential thing. For example, um, style of worship is a non-essential issue. If somebody says you, you know, there's church traditions who say you can't have instruments in worship. And, and their, their logic for that doctrinal position is flawed according to our reading of scripture and what seems plain and revealed in God's word. But if a person says, well, I believe you shouldn't have worship or instruments in worship, that doesn't make them not a Christian. That's a non-essential issue. There's a lot of non-essential issues that we're gonna come across, particularly when we are moving through the creation account. At the same time, if somebody walks up to you and says, Jesus isn't God, but I'm still a Christian, then we're on good biblical authority saying, yeah, you're not a Christian. That's an essential doctrine. The virgin birth is essential. Christ dying on the cross and rising again is essential. Jesus Christ bodily returned to the earth in his second coming is essential. There's not thousands of essential doctrines, but there are a significant number of them. But there's not, not every doctrine, doctrine is essential. Now, setting out in Genesis should make us pause to consider why the God gave us the Bible in the first place. If the goal was that he wanted to reveal himself to us, why not specifically detail and answer every single question that, that he knew would arise? God's outside of time and space. He knows every question and objection people might have to the book of Genesis or some of these controversies, right? That, that's not a surprise to him. So why not just answer all of those? Well, for one thing, there simply wouldn't be space for all of that. The Apostle John, when he's writing the Gospel of John, as he closes his book, he says, you know, when I think about it, if I would have just written down all the things Jesus did during his incarnation, during his time between his birth and his ascension, just that one person, the most important person of all of human history and all of eternal history, right? But just that one person and his relatively limited scope in the land of Judea in first century, he said, if we just wrote down what he did on his own, the whole world wouldn't be able to contain the books. So if we turn around and then say to God, we want you to give us a complete copious volume concerning creation that answers every objection, every question, every, I mean, we just, it couldn't be done. It couldn't be read. It, the world wouldn't be able to house everything that God was doing. But at the same time, God's word is not meant to be a reference book, meaning the Bible isn't to function in our lives like a dictionary where we pull it down so that we can index through and grab an isolated piece of information when we want it and then put it back on the shelf. The Bible is God showing us who he is and drawing us to himself as a person and showing us who we are 
and showing us how we can commune with him and be brought into his household. It's a very personal thing. It's a, it's a living word where he wants us to understand him as a person and understand what he has said and what he has done. It's not just a, a simple reference text. God explains very clearly why he gave us the Bible. He gives us his word so that we can be complete people. He gave his word so that we might understand sin and understand how we can receive eternal life. We're to take God's word and live by it because we cannot live properly without it. That's what the Bible says about itself. Since all of that is true, we can be sure that what God has recorded is sufficient. Uh, Using a, a current term, we don't need a Snyder cut of the Bible, right? So what happened? If you are DC fans, we'll pray for you after service. But if you, if you follow this, if you don't know what I'm talking about, I'll try my best to explain it. So they made a movie that nobody liked, right? Was it Justice League, I guess? I haven't watched any of the DC movies, I'm sorry. So they made, so this director, Zack Snyder, was making this movie, The Justice League. Then he had to drop out. Then another director came in and finished it up, but everybody hated it because it was a bad movie. So then for years, there was this internet campaign that, well, if Zack Snyder's version of the movie would have come out, then it would have been great and all these questions would have been answered and it would have satisfied everything we wanted. And so for years, this online campaign mounted towards the studio, released the Snyder Cut. And they finally did. They spent like another, who knows how many millions of dollars to redo a bad movie that people didn't like and then release it. And it's like, I don't know, 40 hours long or so. I think it's like four hours long. And so release the Snyder Cut. We don't need a Snyder Cut of the Bible to get you know, an- more answers than we have. The Lord has given us everything that we need. But now since we read God's word for life, the question is, okay, well then how should I read this book, Genesis? because there are various types of literature in the Bible. There's history, prophecy, poetry, right? There's visions, there's parables, there's all sorts of styles of literature in the Bible. What about this book? Some say it is a mythology, at least the first 11 chapters. Some say it is an accurate literal history. Others say much of it is figurative. Some say it's neither literal nor figurative, but analogical. How we read a book makes a big difference to what we understand about what we're reading, right? If you're reading the Sunday comics, it's a lot different than the front page of the newspaper. If you're reading an opinion piece, hopefully it's a lot uh, different than a factual piece of reporting. I know that's all getting blurred together in this day and age, but we understand that. Now here at Calvary, we read the Bible literally. I'm guessing that just about everybody here knows that and signs on with it. But it's important that we remind ourselves of our method of interpretation, especially in a book like this one, which is the site of so many theological disagreements. There may be things that we can't fully comprehend about God's word and about this book. For example, like an eternal self-existent God, we can't actually comprehend that. If we actually try to stretch our brains to the limit of what that means, we just can't do it. It's so far outside of our understanding. We accept it on faith because God says that it is true. But even if there are certain things that we cannot fully comprehend or fully wrap our minds around, we come to scripture here at Calvary assuming that what we're reading is meant to be taken in its plain literal sense unless we have a compelling textual or contextual reason not to. Here's one helpful explanation of what is referred to as the literal method of biblical interpretation that we ascribe to. 
It says, to interpret literally means nothing more or less than to interpret in terms of normal, usual designation. When the text alters its designation, like when we see a vision or parable or clear analogy, the interpreter, us, immediately shifts our method of interpreting. So sometimes people in other traditions will say, you, it, they'll laugh when you say we read the Bible literally. Oh, really? Oh, really? The, you know, and it'll say, you know, for example, in the book of the Revelation, we saw in this last week, you know, a dragon before the woman clothed with a son and he was going to devour her baby. Oh, that literally happened? Well, no, that's not what we're saying because it's clear that that was a vision, that that is a symbol symbolizing some truth. It's clearly depicted. We understand that. But when the Bible says a great whale swallowed Jonah, and we're not given any indication that the Bible is giving us this image in a figurative way or in, a, uh, uh, in the sense of a parable or a dream or anything like that. And then we say, yeah, a great fish swallowed Jonah because that's how language works because it's, it's plain and it's simple. And if we can't count on the plain understanding of language, then what's the point of reading the Bible at all? Because if, if each and every one of us have our own interpretation of what this symbolizes or what we think this figure means or it could mean this or it could mean that, not only is that gonna change person to person, it's gonna change culture to culture, generation to generation. And in, in that case, the God, who's clearly the best communicator in, in, of all, right? He's completely failed to communicate anything definitive to us. So we read the Bible plainly and literally. After all, the whole point is that God is communicating with mankind so that we will learn and understand, not perfectly, but effectively. It helps to remember that this book isn't written only to us. It was written to an original audience and then every generation in between that original audience and us in all places all over the world. And God meant it to be understood by each and every hearer of his word from the original audience all the way till this point tonight. The first group to hear this wonderful book were the children of Israel who had been rescued from slavery in Egypt and were headed through the wilderness to the promised land. Jesus Christ verifies that Moses was the author of this book multiple times in the Bible. If you're reading a commentary, if you're hearing a Bible study, or if you're looking at some resource talking about Genesis and it says, traditionally, Moses wrote this, but clearly he didn't. I'm not saying you should throw it away right away, but what they're saying is we know better than what Jesus said. Jesus, after all, was a backwoods hick from Nazareth who didn't know higher criticism because I went to college, right? That's effectively what they're saying. Jesus said Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. So this was a group of people, and he, would, he had to write it between the Exodus and his death before they entered the Promised Land. So we have some basic time frame of when this book was written and delivered. And this group that first heard the book of Genesis was a group of people who were being made into a nation for the first time. It was a group who was having truth and morality and a worldview codified for them. This book, along with Moses' other four that follow it, it was their founding document, the law of Moses. Everything was going to be built upon what is revealed here. 
This was divine revelation that not only answered the great cosmic questions of who we are and where do we come from, does God exist, what is the meaning of life, but then on top of that, it was the foundation for their society and their families and their whole future. Do we think that maybe God went to pains to make sure they understood what he was trying to say to them? I do. And so we know that through this book, God has every intention of revealing himself and explaining life to us. In that perfect effort, that perfect plan, how does he start? Genesis 1 verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was, without, uh, was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. One of the most remarkable things about the opening of this book is that it does not seek in any way to prove the existence of God, not even a little bit. It doesn't say, now let, let me, let me you, you, okay, hang on, I know what you're thinking. Let me explain who God is. It doesn't do that at all. God is assumed from the very beginning. In our English text, it's the fourth word in. In the Hebrew text, there's just like two words, right? And from the beginning, God is assumed. As far as Moses is concerned, God is so real and so present that there's no need to even discuss his backstory. We don't need to see Batman's backstory one more time. We've seen it so many times. We get it. We know the pearls go flying. He's a little boy. He's crying. We know. Please, Hollywood Studios, stop giving us Spider-Man's backstory and Batman's backstory. We don't need to see it anymore. Right? But so we feel that way about a dumb character like Batman. And Moses comes along and says, Yeah, I don't even need to give you the backstory on God because God is so real and so present and so obvious in this universe that I don't need to make an effort to explain him to you. It reminds us of that time when Moses first talked with God in the book of Exodus. He says, what does he say to God in the burning bush? He says, I'm gonna have to answer some questions about you, not from me, but my countrymen are gonna say, what, who, what God, who God, who are you talking about? What should I answer them? And God said, here's your answer to all of those questions. I am who I am, right? He doesn't give any backstory. He doesn't give any, any arguments. He doesn't give any kind of that kind of thing. He says, I am. And you can either believe that or not, but it doesn't make it true one way or another. The evidence Moses, he gives Moses is not whether God exists. He says, well, how will they know that you've sent me? And he says, well, here's what you're gonna do. You're gonna throw your staff down and then they'll know that you're my servant. But when he says, what about you? He says, I am. God is constant. In the beginning, the beginning of what? Not the beginning of God. He has no start, no cause. He is eternal, self-existent. He is outside of what we know to be time and space and matter. All that was created by him and he made the heavens and the earth, what we call the universe, including all of the elements and the atoms and the energy and the forces like gravity. He made it all from nothing, from the word of his mouth. He spoke and it was done. And so we see that this book is a record of the beginning of our universe and God's dealings in it. In its simplicity, verse one reveals some dramatic things about this God. First, that he transcends everything. Second, that he is more powerful than we could ever hope to imagine or fathom. 
Third, that he has the ability to choose and plan and make determinations. He's not a blind force like gravity. He is a thoughtful person. Additionally, if we read Hebrew, we would see that the word for God used here is Elohim. Now, I am not a language scholar, and I think that as Bible students, we should be careful to not go too often to different opinions about Hebrew and Greek definitions because those opinions often come with a bias. So we just want to be careful about always saying, well, in the original Greek, this is what it means. That's often one scholar's opinion, and that's, there's some some value there, but we just want to be careful about that. But scholars all agree that the term Elohim is a plural term, and yet it is being used here to describe an individual God. We are being told that this God is more than one and yet is still one. In verse two, we read of his spirit, a personage of this multiple in one God. By verse 26, we discover he refers to himself plurally, let us make man in our image. And yet he's clearly one God. And then he goes on to explain in the, Lord of the, in the uh, law of Moses, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And so don't let anyone tell you the Trinity isn't taught in scripture. Don't let anyone tell you that you know, that's some idea that was forced upon the Bible later on by you know, pagan people. Now, when we move from verse one to verse two, a problem presents itself and must be dealt with. How can God create the heavens and the earth? And yet we see that right away, it is described as formless and empty, or maybe your translation says void. And if it is formless, how then is there a deep? Why does it seem so chaotic? Why does it seem so messed up? There are a variety of interpretations about what is going on here. And this is where a fight breaks out immediately. One of them is called the gap theory. It's a camp some Christians are in, that's okay. By the way, this is different than what is known as theistic evolution or what you might hear is called the day age theory. We'll get into those in future studies. But the gap theory suggests that there is a significant gap of what we would call time between verses one and two. The thinking is that God made a perfect universe in verse one. And that universe was um, populated and governed by the angelic beings, not by human beings. And some would go as far as to say that that, uh, Lucifer was the king of the earth. And that in that gap of time between verses one and two, uh, Lucifer rebelled against God, became the devil, took a third of the angels with him. And then that prompted God's judgment over that perfect creation and rendered the perfect universe from verse one formless and void in verse two, kind of smashed by God's wrath. That's the idea. And then after an unknown length of time, verse two picks up with a reforming of creation, which would ultimately include human beings. If this describes your position on Genesis 1, 1 and 1, 2, that's fine. The gap theory doesn't track for me. I I wanna be honest, I'm up here talking. I'm not a gap theorist, that's okay. Uh, not only because it relies so much on silence and speculation, there's no, there's no biblical evidence for that. It's all evidence from silence, but it also demands that there be death before sin when you get into it. And some of it is trying to account for geolo- what we see as geological ages in the earth. And we'll deal with all of that in coming studies. But uh, the problem for me with the gap theory is that Paul says in Romans 5 that death came as a result of Adam's sin, not as a result of of Satan's sin. And so death before sin, that's a hurdle I uh, can't seem to clear over. 
Another view is that verse one is describing God's act of creating all the forces and the elements of our universe. And, and they're sort of collected there as paints on a palette in verse two. And then the creator goes about fashioning his great work of art. He had everything there at his disposal, created by the word of his mouth, and he went about forming it from all the different elements. That's a possible interpretation of what we're seeing in verses one and two. A third view is that verse one is a title or summary of all the work of God's creation. Verse two gives the conditions of the beginnings of God's work, and then verse three starts explaining how the sausage was made. And so we just can't exactly know for sure. So when did Satan rebel against God? For that matter, when were the angelic hosts created? How long were Adam and Eve in the garden before they ate the fruit? There's a lot of questions that get raised up immediately when we are reading through this account. And you know, we're just not told so we don't know. You can have an opinion, you can have a guess, you can construct a case, that's all great. You should do that as a student of the Bible. End of the day, we don't wanna divide with brothers and sisters over these non-essential, ultimately unknowable questions. Sometimes the Bible is detailed and sometimes it isn't. The Lord knows what we need to be told and he has told us what he wants us to know. Some of these things are going to remain a mystery for us. Instead of getting into fights about the spaces between the words, I'd encourage us to focus on what is recorded here. What do we see? We're seeing a transcendent God who somehow brings himself into his creation. He involves himself. The spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. He injected himself into his creation. Now, what does it mean that the spirit was hovering over the waters? Well, Moses is gonna use that very term another time in his fifth book. And when he uses it, he's once again describing God. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, in this amazing song of Moses, the lawgiver is talking about God's greatness and his incredible work and how even though the people had not been faithful to him, he was gonna be faithful to them because of his tender love. And then he says this in verse 11, Deuteronomy 32, 11, he, God, watches over his nest like an eagle and hovers over his young. He spreads his wings and catches him and carries him on his feathers. That's the heart of our creator. That's the kind of God we're talking about. Why did he make this universe? He doesn't need it to give him some kind of power. He doesn't need us to give him glory. We do give him glory, but he doesn't need, we add nothing to God. We add nothing to his greatness, nothing to his glory. Even if we you know, use our whole lives to glorify God and we're burned at the stake for the cause of Christ, we add nothing to God, right? He doesn't need us. We don't have to validate his power. He didn't lack attention. He created the universe out of the awesome goodness of his will so that he might pour out his extravagant love on his creation. From the very first moment of cosmological history, he was affectionately tending his universe like a mother eagle taking care of her young. There are a lot of questions that we have about the mechanics of this creation, that's fine. But remember that God's intention in recording this for us is to reveal himself to us. And that will become clear as we go through this book. And what else will become clear is that this God, so full of power and might, delights in his creation. 
He has good intentions for it. He loves light and he loves order and he loves growth and beauty. He likes to build things and he likes to develop things and he likes to further things. And we'll find he likes to do so with us. He wants to include us, a special creation, human beings. He wants to include us in that work that he started so long ago. This is where the Bible says you come from, from this God who has this kind of passion and care and and affection for you. The start matters. Where you came from matters. Back when M. Night Shyamalan was still making our hearts pound with trick endings, he made Unbreakable. At the end, you go through this long movie. It's kind of a heavy movie. It takes this really slow pace. And then finally, at the end, you discover that Elijah Price has been the architect of many terrible disasters and crimes. And it was a true, true twist ending back then. As he monologues to the hero, Mr. Glass says something profound. He says this, you know what the scariest thing is? To not know your place in this world, to not know why you're here. Now that we know who you are, I know who I am. I'm not a mistake, it all makes sense. Now that's a a silly comic book movie. I'm on comic book movies a lot tonight, I'm sorry. But that, that phrase could be applied to our own lives and and our understanding of what God has revealed. Genesis reveals an all-powerful God who has turned his attention on you and me. You have been designed on purpose. This is not a fable. It's not a propaganda piece meant to stick the thumb in the eye of the Babylonian mythologists. This is the true account of our beginning. The Lord says, this is where you come from. Genesis will show us where sin comes from, where salvation comes from, where family comes from, where nations come from. And you know what? If chapters 1 through 11 are figurative, we have got a problem because then we can't be sure of where we came from and we can't be sure of why things are the way they are and we can't be sure of what can be done about it and whether God is actually going to do anything about it in the end. The original audience, the children of Israel, if this was all just a figure, the creation account, they wouldn't have known if God was really on the level about his directions and his promises to them. If the Garden of Eden isn't literal, maybe the New Jerusalem isn't literal either. Who's to say? And so there's a lot of serious implications to consider how we're interpreting what we're reading. On the other hand, if we listen to what God says about the purpose of his revelation, and if we take him at his word, things become much more clear, not perfectly. Right now we see through a glass darkly, But in this book, God pulls back the curtain so that we can see what he's done and what kind of creator he is. One of unlimited power, but also unlimited tenderness. He's a God who's all about filling, filling our universe with his goodness, filling our lives with his goodness, giving us a revelation of himself, inviting us to come and see who he is so that we, like the original audience, would learn what this God is capable of and how great his care is for us and how much we can trust him and follow his leading. After all, the God who brought continents out of the ocean depths could certainly deal with a little Jordan River that was dividing them from the promised land on their walk to Canaan. Now take what we've seen about the Lord and think about your own life for a minute. After all, God... makes us his new creation in Christ, we're told in the New Testament. 
Some see verse two as describing uh, an uninhabited world. That it says, well, the, the, nothing was ruined in verse two. It was just that the world was uninhabited, unpopulated. And the truth is the word void, according to many scholars, could also be rendered as empty or unfilled. In that case, we can see that God's desire is to take your life and not leave you empty or unfilled. He wants to fill you up and fashion you into a stunning masterpiece of his craftsmanship. He wants to create in you a magnificent testimony of his grace. His Holy Spirit is here even now moving in our midst to accomplish that work as you follow after him. Others see verse two as describing that ruined perfect world because of the fall of Satan. Okay, how might that apply? If that's you tonight, that's fine. In that case, it's as if your life has been crushed by the terrible result of rebellion against God. Maybe tonight you feel like you've wrecked your life because of sin and don't know where to go from here. Maybe you have wrecked your life because of sin, but take heart. Look what God can do even in a situation like that. He is the redeemer. He is the rescuer. He brings beauty from ashes. His spirit has not abandoned you. He's still hovering above you like a mother eagle. His intentions for you are still wonderful and good. He can make right what you've ruined. A major point of God's revelation in this book is that he does these things on purpose. His creation was on purpose. You were made on purpose for his purpose. The question is, are you allowing him to form you and fill you and direct your life? Can we honestly say that the spirit of God is active in our lives, that we submit to him like a baby eagle, depending on its mother, learning to become full-fledged? That's a question each of us should face tonight. God is not done with his work, not by a long shot. Discover what that work is by taking in his word and letting it be the lamp to your feet. Be a recipient and a participant in his work and allow him to do what he's wanted to do all along in your life, not resisting him, but responding to his call and his movement in your life.